Hello, welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show, where we'll be discussing leadership, business, and human potential, inspiring you to live rich from the inside out. Unlock your creativity, stretch out of your comfort zone, break through your barriers, take inspired action, and achieve epic results. Now, here's your host, two-time best-selling author, speaker, and certified executive coach, Deborah Kosowski. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Millionaire Woman Show. I'm your host, Deborah Kosowski, and I have a very special guest today, and I learned of her from some TED Talks and then in a course that I was at with Bo Eason. Dr. Joan Rosenberg, best-selling author, consultant, master clinician, and media host, is a cutting-edge psychologist who is known as an innovative thinker, acclaimed speaker, and trainer. As a two-time TEDx speaker and member of the Association of Transformational Leaders, she has been recognized for her thought leadership and influence in personal development. Dr. Rosenberg has been featured in documentaries such as I Am, The Miracle Mindset, Pursuing Happiness, and The Hidden Epidemic. She's been on CNN's American Morning and The Own Network and PBS, as well as appearances on radio interviews in all major metropolitan markets. A California licensed psychologist, Dr. Rosenberg speaks on how to build confidence, emotional strength, resilience, achieving emotional, conversational, and relationship mastery, integrating neuroscience and psychotherapy and suicide prevention. An Air Force veteran, she is a professor of graduate of psychology at Pepperdine University in Los Angeles, California, and her latest book, 90 Seconds to a Life You Love, How to Master Your Difficult Feelings to Cultivate Lasting Confidence, Resilience, and Authenticity and it was released February 12th of this year. I'm super excited. Thank you for coming on the show. You're so welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And just for those uh, people viewing, because we are on video and as well on iTunes for audio, but I want to encourage you all to get a chance to watch the TEDx Santa Barbara Emotional Mastery, The Gifted Wisdom of Unpleasant Feelings. That one will blow your mind as to what you can do to really reset your emotions when you have those unpleasant feelings. And TEDx Rosenberg, Grief... No, it's, Rose, it's Roseburg. It's Roseburg. Roseburg. Yes. Okay. Grief, the pathway to forgiveness. So thank you for correcting that. Yeah, sure. So one of the things that I want to just jump into is what led you to becoming a psychologist? <laughs> I was, that's a great question. I was uh, a good listener from a very early age and my uh, family used to joke and my neighbors used to joke that I could go out and play with the kids and uh, uh, whatever it was that we were doing outside and then I would sit down with the adults and converse with them. So uh, that I, I just had a facility early and uh, and as soon as I, and I was very interested in in personal growth and uh, more specifically, it was experiential education. So if you're familiar with Outward Bound or using nature as the medium for personal growth, that uh, that caught my attention probably when I was 15 or 16. 
and they didn't really have degree programs for that, but where I landed was in a counseling program and I started and never left. So I, personal growth has, has always been the path. Well, yeah. I'm glad you followed that path because <laughs> you've been able to shift people's perspectives on being in uncomfortable places. And I know there's, as you encounter people in the world, you can sense how they show up. Yep. And I am curious of how do you help people become and develop better self-confidence? You know, the, I have a kind of a slightly different angle on, on the idea of confidence. And, and the way I think about it is that it's confidence is the deep sense that you can handle the emotional outcome. So that's what I want to underline here, the emotional outcome of whatever you face or whatever you pursue. So it's so think of it as kind of an embedded sense of can doativeness, and but it's not the results that people get that uh, the uncertainty they're worried about the result. It's more about how they're going to feel in the process. Yes, yes. So so when when people worry about pursuing something, it's not. I don't think that they're actually worried about the thing. So let's let's say somebody's going to go do a piano recital or something like that, and or they're going to go play tennis in front of a group of people. Uh, the, it's not the tennis that they're concerned about, or it's not the, the piano recital specifically they're concerned about. They're concerned about the emotional outcome of mm -hmm. how they do. So if they lose, um, then they might be embarrassed or they might be sad or disappointed or something else. And it's not, so they worry about the emotional outcome, but they, they tend to worry that more, they tend to worry about the thing because they don't carry it far enough. But I think it's the emotional outcome they're concerned about. And I would say the same thing is true for the, like the piano recital or doing a public speech. It's not the speech itself, it's the outcome, the emotional outcome of having done the speech. So, so my whole thing is helping people be able to experience and move through unpleasant feelings so they can go pursue the things that they wanna pursue. Um, <clears throat> so that's that's a start down the path of developing yeah. confidence, but there's much more to be said. So it was making me think about I've done triathlons in the past, and everyone says to me, "Are you going to, you know, go to do a half Ironman next?" And all of my triathlon, except for a couple, have been in a pool. Uh -huh. And I find as soon as I get into open water, because I didn't grow up swimming in open water that as soon as I put my face in and it goes dark underneath me, I no longer feel safe. Uh -huh. So I have not pursued that area at all for that reason. Right. But it's, again, I guess that would be one of those feelings of feeling unsafe rather than I have the ability to swim. It has nothing to do with being able to take the action. Right, it has right. To do with how, how I feel as I swim in a open water. Right. So if you actually practice swimming in open water and that's all you did for a while till you acclimated, then you'd probably say, okay, I got it. I can do this. Yeah. So, so then, so that, so then the, so then the confidence piece for me is it, it really, I think it's, it's actually quite learnable or, or, or we can really develop it, but it's, it's a bit on the paradoxical side because people think that you have to have confidence and then you go take a specific action or you have confidence and you go take the risk or you have confidence and then you speak up. And actually that's not the way it works. And it seems so simple, but, but it's, but people don't talk about this. The way confidence works is you do the thing 
and that's how you gain confidence. Or you speak up, and it's through spe- as you speak and through speaking that you gain confidence, not the other way around. Yeah, because often that's what people think. Confidence right. first, and then I will be confident. Yeah. I can that's, but that's, that's not how it works. It's the other way around. Wow. So having emotional strength, this yes. is part of confidence as well. What goes into developing emotional strength? Is it, is it the same as emotional intelligence? You know, no, I don't think of it that way. I actually think of it quite differently than, than emotional intelligence. I, and, and emotional intelligence is kind of the awareness, if you will, of, of other people, of emotion within and other people's emotion. So it's not, it's very different from that. The, and it's funny because in the book, I, I write about it as redefining emotional strength. And I realized later, I don't think I've ever heard anybody define it. So I should have claimed it and said, let me define it for you. And I look at, I look at emotional strength as having two major components to it. One is what I call feeling capable, and the other one is uh, being resourceful. And, and so the, for me, capability is centered on one's capacity to experience and move through eight unpleasant feelings, or the way I talk about them in the book, difficult feelings. And the, the feelings are sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, vulnerability, embarrassment, disappointment, and frustration. So, so, so those, are, those are the eight that I want people to be able to experience and move through. And, and then and what I realized is that people, when people want to go out into the world and do things, it, I, they didn't feel capable, again, coming back to my definition, they didn't feel capable until they felt like they could handle that emotional outcome, capable in the world. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the first part of emotional strength. The second part of emotional strength actually has to do with our ability to lean on others. And most of us, again, at least socialized in the, in the U.S., are taught not to depend on others. We should do things independently. But, but I, I really, that's a, an unbalanced view from my perspective. And, and so I want people to understand it's their ability to to do both, to be independent at some points and also to, to depend on others or lean on others. So resourcefulness then, this, the second part of the definition, has to do with acknowledging our needs and limitations and asking for help, which puts asking for help squarely in emotional strength as an aspect of emotional strength. So it's being capable, eight unpleasant feelings, being resourceful, asking for help. I find it fascinating because I have run into people who think that if they ask for help or they see a psychologist, that they've failed. Yeah, uh, furthest from the truth. You know, it's just like, no, it's it's actually it's recognizing. You know, I, <laughs> it's recognizing you need the help. I always went early, very early in my career. The, the people would talk about asking for help as a burden and and that sort of thing, and I would look at them and I'd say, so so let's say we have two people. Uh, both know that they have problems. Both know that they need help. One goes to ask for the help and the other doesn't. Which one's the wise one and which one's the fool? Mm-hmm. So, it's, so that we're actually much wiser and help ourselves so much more when we have the capacity to, to genuinely turn to people when we're in need. 
That's very powerful because I know that there's people who think, you know, if I do seek that help, I, I'm a failure. I, I haven't succeeded because I should figure out this myself. And as you talked about being resourceful is that we don't need to know everything. No, and we can't, we can't. And, and in fact, the, the thing that I would say is that none of us succeeds alone. Zero, none of us. I don't know anybody. It doesn't matter how successful or how if we look at fi the financial markers or whatever it is, nobody has succeeded alone. It's taken depending on others to do your, to do your laundry, to cook for you, to, um, to take things to the cleaners. To, I don't care what it is, our, we, but we, a coach or a mentor, none of us succeeds alone. And, and so what, if we can get that, that particular idea in our brains, that will make a big difference. And the other is that we all fail our way to success. And I, I like to, to think of failure as simply a learning opportunity. So we all learn, we all learn our ways to success. Mm -hmm. and, and, and by the way, I, I am a failure is not the equivalent to I failed at something. So, so there, that's what I would call bad emotional math. And it's another thing I would tackle. So, uh, so it's, again, people have to get the idea that, that, that we learn or fail our way to success. And it's always done in concert with other people. I love how you differentiated the two of the failing versus being a failure. Yep. Very different definitions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's I. Uh, people li like to equate it, it and I, I call it bad emotional math. So it's it's uh, if if I if I failed at something, it didn't work out. I made a mistake or whatever. Then then the only thing that's equal to is the fact that you made that mistake. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. No, nothing more. So to say I failed at something, meaning it didn't work out the way I had intended. Uh, the, and and to say I equals I am a failure. We're talking about two very different levels of something, and they're, they they don't equate at all. Yeah, it's shifting the kaleidoscope and looking Absolutely. at things very differently. Yes, yes. So often we hear about fear and people having the fear of uncertainty, which I thought was maybe one of people's most greatest fears because the fear of uncertainty is the one that, because you don't know if you can handle it, but as we're speaking, it really has to do with the feelings of not being able to handle it and how you're seen often. Um, fear of embarrassment, fear of failure, fear of success even. Right. So when, and that, when, with that fear, people get anxiety. Right. So how can someone handle that anxiety that's associated with fear better? Well, you know what? Uh, the first thing I would do is ditch your word fear, by the way. <laughs> so, so I, when, when I hear fear in, in my brain, it, it's just like, it kicks the word back out of my ear. And, and what I hear instead usually is the word vulnerability. Mm. So, so for me, the vulnerability being, and again, it's kind of a, uh, it's not necessarily a pure emotion. It's more of an emotional state, but the, when I think of vulnerability, it's this kind of awareness that we could be hurt. Right. And, yeah. and so when you talk about fear of uncertainty, no, we're just having an awareness that something unexpected might happen. And the thing we tend to do is to anticipate the worst. Mm -hmm. so that, that gets into why people in quotes time kind of describe it as fear. But if I, so, so if you let me walk down this path for a moment, uh, I, I want to take you to the anxiety piece that the, so fear from in general, psychology looks at fear as 
danger in the moment right now. And most of us, when we're using the words like fear of success, fear of public speaking, fear of uncertainty, we're not in danger. So it's like, don't use the word because when you use that word, you're just activating that state within you. Uh, and it doesn't relate. You're not in danger. So toss the word, right? So, and that, so the next most logical one we would use would be anxiety. Now that's, if you will, it's more appropriate, but anxiety, again, psychology considers diffuse apprehension of the future. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. Except I tend to think of anxiety as a cover for the eight unpleasant feelings I mentioned. So, so then it's like anxiety, if I asked 10 people what anxiety meant, I'd get 10 different answers. Mm -hmm. Which means that anxiety is not a good word to be using either. It's too, way too vague. Just like the word stressed, way too vague. Doesn't really capture, in essence, what someone's going through. So the next most logical one after that is vulnerable. And, and it's interesting, if, I, if somebody says I'm anxious about public speaking, and I say, well, actually, let's play with the words a little bit, and they use the word vulnerable, you'll watch, you'll watch their body go, ooh, just like sell down. Because yeah. what they realize is, yeah, they're feeling vulnerable. They're feeling exposed. They feel like they could get hurt. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of this is that if, you, if one is feeling vulnerable, the way you handle vulnerability is to be able to experience and move through the other seven feelings. So it's, um, that's really the key to, to experiencing and moving through that vulnerability. So instead of running away from those feelings, people need to be present with those feelings. Yes, definitely, 100%. Yes. So All you, about moving toward what we consider unpleasant or difficult. Because it's not, those feelings, again, same thing. I'm a big, big fan of language, and, and I don't believe in calling unpleasant or difficult feelings bad and negative, because they're not. They were, they're there for protective purposes. And, and so they're not bad or negative. They're, they're inform, they're, it's informative data, if you will, for us. So the words we use tend to be very powerful then. So instead of using fear, replace yeah. it with vulnerability. Are there any other words we should look at and pay attention to when we speak to others? Whether we be nervous or whether we want to be more confident? Are there any words that... Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I, would, uh, I would move people using out of... I mean, there's a strategy in the book that I, I talk about the the am I, can I, will I, do I questions. And, and most of us will ask, can I do that? Am I okay? Will it work out? Those, those kinds of things. That's, that's why I call it the am I, will I, can I, do I. Uh, and the key is anytime you ask those questions, you're putting yourself in doubt, in a state of doubt. And, and so the thing for you to do is to switch the order of the words and, and change it to I can, I am, I will, I do. And now you're moving yourself into more of a state of confidence. So you're, you're asking the question when most of the time you actually know that you can do it. That was, that was very powerful. <laughs> Just switching the world because I'm like, can I do this? I can do this. Or do I think I can do this? You know, I was just like, wow, that just seems so simple. That just quick switch. Yeah. Well, but that's the simplicity is what uh, sim the simple tends to be the most profound. So, yeah. The, and the, uh, the other is, I mean, I would get, I would have people get word, get rid of the words rejection and abandonment. Mm 
because I, when as as adults, people will talk about a fear of being abandoned. Mm-hmm. But but I I think as children we can be abandoned. Uh, with most adults, if you have adequate resources, meaning you can think clearly, you have friends, you can turn to people, you have financial resources, or or a variety of the things that you didn't have when you were a child, then I don't think that it's a matter of that you're fearing abandonment, you're fearing disappointment, mm. or fearing sadness, or, or again, I would take the word fear out of it, but but that's usually how, it, colloquially, that's how it gets used. And the same is true for rejection, that people, I got rejected, or I feel rejected, or whatever. And it's like, no, 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 you don't. You feel disappointed. Yeah. You feel disappointed or you feel angry or you feel sad, but it's not, you feel rejected. So it's, I would, so in terms of some other language changes, those, those are, uh, and I think I talk about all of that in the book as well. I've heard the phrase, you know, disagreement does not equal rejection. Correct. Absolutely true. Yeah. And, you know, with that, I learned that a lot of people think if someone disagrees with them, that they've been rejected versus someone having another opinion. Right, right, right. Yes. Yeah. So you believe that people can also learn to be resilient. Yes. What does it take to be resilient? Well, again, we've talked about two, two major pieces to it. The, the, the ability to, or the capacity to experience and move through those eight unpleasant feelings. That's one. Uh, so that to me is a foundational piece of being resilient, is being able to handle the emotional outcome. And the second would be asking for help. So again, part of the emotional strength. And beyond that, there's certain actions you can take, but largely resilience, I believe, is really tied into belief and attitude. So if I, if I have an understanding that change is the constant, and it's not, it's not me adapting to routine, but it's really keeping an open mindset that changes the constant. And when I have things that are stable and quiet that I just, I approach that with from a place of grace and gratitude, but always being mindful that I want to be flexible and adaptive in the face of change. That would be an attitude to hold. Another, another would be uh, that every, every experience in my life is a learning opportunity. So that I never, again, I don't classify it as failure. I classify it as a learning opportunity. So that means, that means I can always grow from this or I, or I, or I maintain a growth mindset that I, I keep an open mind to, to always growing from everything that I go through. Uh, faith is, a, is another one. And uh, doing something bigger than you, having a purpose that's bigger than you and, and putting your efforts into something like volunteering or, or what have you. All, all there's, a, again, I, I think I've named like 20 or 25 different things that attitudes pe- that people can hold uh, that really make a huge difference in, in, in addition to being resourceful and being capable. Well, there's a lot of, you know, tapes or self-limiting beliefs that play through our mind at any time. We, we're about to take an action and then we remember something that happened and talk right. ourselves out of it. Harsh criticism can get, get in the way of people really pursuing their dreams. Right. What's your take on the self-criticism? You know, I, I see it as a distraction from the eight unpleasant feelings. So it's, uh, it, I look at somebody engaging in harsh self-criticism. At that time, again, that's thinking. And so I call it a thought hijack of, of feeling, of unpleasant feeling. 
And what I found is that, is that I'll, I'll, in fact, I'll listen or I'll watch people start to talk about something that they're upset about. And, and, and then all of a sudden there's this turn and now I'm, I'm hearing somebody go, well, I'm, you know, I'm so stupid or that was so dumb of me or, mm-hmm. and now they're into the harsh self-criticism. And, and I, so it's like, the, it, it's a subtle it, and sometimes not so subtle, very fast switch. And, and I actually think it's a cover for those eight unpleasant feelings. So the, the thing that becomes really important for people to do is to catch themselves engaging in that negative self-talk and, and then to see if they can pause, stop and think about what happened that led them to that and, and almost kind of metaphorically walk it in reverse Mm-hmm. And, and go, well, then what, what unpleasant feeling, and I would just go with the eight, uh, and what unpleasant feeling was happening or unpleasant feelings were happening right before I started to beat myself up. Um, mm-hmm. And then stay with the feeling. Then make sense of the feeling. It's like, all right, what's that attached to? And what was going on for me that I reacted in the way that I did? So it's, it's, it's singularly... It is uh, probably one of the most damaging things that people can do themselves. And if I am going to, you know, declare a stop to anything, it would be you've got to put a stop to that. It's uh, I, I can't even describe the the darkness and the damage it does. Mm-hmm. And especially when people want to take actions, whether they're working in a company, whether they're in school learning, yep, in their families that. When, when they get that state of self-criticism and if it impacts the feelings that the, those eight feelings that they have, the actions are impacted. I think they you know, oh, yeah. realize how much those actions are impacted and how the results that they want in their life can be sabotaged. Right. No, they pull, they pull back from taking all the risks. They, 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 they won't go try out for this. They won't, we can go on and on. They won't study. They won't, they won't ask the, for a raise. They won't whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, largely because of, again, the feeling outcome. Yeah. And we're back to the same eight unpleasant feeling. And then on the flip side, we have the compliments. Yet so many people push them away mm-hmm. or really play them down. And, and, and you think they're really important. How come? I do. I do. They're, they're <clears throat> probably getting rid of the harsh self-criticism is a touch more important than the compliments, but I almost see them as the flip side of the same coin. Because if people dismiss compliments and engage in high self-criticism, uh, it's not a pretty picture at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I really want people to decrease the harsh self-criticism and to increase their capacity to take in compliments. Pe- people don't offer compliments just kind of out of the blue or they don't come out of a vacuum. <clears throat> they actually, compliments are actually coming out of an engaged experience with another person. So if you sing and I heard you sing and I went, oh my God, I was so touched by that. And I, and I come up to you and I say, thank you for doing that. You know, it's like my heart was moved or whatever it was. I just, you know, keep doing what you're doing because it's so beautiful. <clears throat> for you to go, eh, it was nothing, dismisses my experience and actually downplays your experience. And uh, so the way I look at compliments is that they're a reflection of you back to you. And 
And why is it so important to take that in? Because ultimately, if you consistently get a lot of the same kind of feedback, you have a chance to update your self-image. So it's another element that goes into building confidence. So I, I just think taking in genuine compliments is really crucial. I can see, because when you talk about mirroring, um, can you tell us a little bit about that, more about that? Because I don't know if everybody watching maybe understands that mirror effect of what you have out in the world comes back to you. Yeah, so I'm not, again, same thing. I'm not, uh, if, I, if I were to, you did, you, you know, said something, you did something, uh, or you're, you just listened closely to me and I felt moved by it, whatever it is, and I offer a compliment to you based on, I'm offering the compliment to you based on an experience either with you or an experience of you. And, and so I'm sort of holding up a mirror and saying, hey, please hear this because all I'm doing is, is ref I'm reflecting you I'm acting as a mirror to you of what you just did back to you. And, and so it's, it's just really, it's not, it's not coming out of some make believe place. It's coming out of an experience of and with you. And, and so it, it just, it can help people see themselves more accurately if they, take the the compliments in you know and a lot of a lot of people you know they get lost in this whole imposter syndrome thing mm -hmm. and you know and i have of course i have uh, thoughts about that too but one piece of of maintaining that imposter syndrome is because you're not taking in the compliments i think the other side of that one has to do with speaking up but but the, uh, since we're on the compliment piece, it, the one part of the imposter syndrome is because you're not taking in and absorbing the compliments you're given and, and not allowing yourself to actually update your, your self-image and go, oh, I can do that. Oh, people actually really enjoy that. Yeah. Uh, oh, I, you know, I, so it's that kind of thing. So since, since we're on the imposter syndrome, yeah. I, I'd love to go dig a little bit more into there if it's yes. okay with you. So often when I think of the imposter syndrome, unless you're a neurosurgeon or, you know, someone who's in healthcare, that, um, I think when you're moving through the actions of, we'll use public speaking for an example, you're not an imposter if you're actually practicing the craft. Right. Right. So I find it interesting how even when people are practicing the craft, that they don't see themselves as being versus seeing themselves as someone who's faking. Right. Well, I think that we probably have high standards for ourselves mm -hmm. and, and we would like to achieve a certain level of competence and then and then go out into the world with that level of competence and go okay i'm i'm good i can do this but the way most of us get good at anything is through practice and we're talking about thousands upon thousands or tens of thousands of hours of practice 
and that competence and expertise and mastery develop over time. It's the only way it develops is over time. And that, and that when people first start out, having this imposter thing is like, can I really do this? It makes a little bit more sense. Mm-hmm. But, I, but many people have years and years of experience and have either achieved a degree of excellence or mastery or competence at something and they still play down what they're doing. And, and so they're sort of being an imposter, being an imposter. Right. Now, I, I, I've never said that before, but um, I might call it out as it is. The, it, it's, it's, because they're, it's because they're devaluing mm-hmm. and diminishing probably many compliments that they've taken, that they've heard, or they're diminishing their own awareness of their skill set. And they know they're good at it, but they're playing it down. So they're not being honest with themselves. And I think the third part of it is that um, if they're not saying that speaking the truth, uh, then they're uh, and speaking up and being more genuine about who they really are. I think that that also plays into a little bit of the imposter syndrome mm-hmm. uh, because, because people, people they're doing stuff or they're whatever, but they're not being transparent as human beings and, and, and they get a compliment. And usually the thing that follows that compliment is, oh yeah, but if you only knew the real me. And, right. the, and, and I think that that statement, people, people make that statement because they're actually not telling the truth of who they are. So I think there's, uh, there's three or four really important elements in this. It's the speaking up, it's accepting compliments, uh, genuine compliments and, and so you can update your self-image and then the third is uh, is accurately also acknowledging your own level of confidence and mastery or skill set yeah and that updating of self-image is not an outside appearance it's an internal work yeah no no it's all internal yeah, yeah it's not, it's, uh, yeah yes yeah so people are always encouraged to speak up for themselves how does yep. speaking up have to do with confidence well, same thing. It's what I said a few moments back, more towards the beginning of our conversation, that it's the notion that, that we, we think we know ourselves and then we speak, and we think that we need to have confidence and then speak. And the truth of the matter is, as you speak and through speaking, you gain confidence. And as you speak and through speaking, you actually come to know yourself better. I'm sure there are many times that you've been engaged in a conversation and, and as something came out of your mouth, you went, oh, I didn't realize I thought that, or, or something. You just became a more fully, a, a more full human being in some way, more fully lived or something, more fully expressed simply by speaking up. And, and so I, beyond the foundation of being able to experience and move through those eight unpleasant feelings, the, the next most important thing I think people do is that they, they speak up. And the, I just, I think it's so crucial. I think it changes our molecules. Can't prove it. Probably it can be proven, but, but I actually so strongly believe it changes us from the inside out. It's probably singularly the most important thing we do. Above, above and beyond that, experiencing and moving through the eight unpleasant feelings and being able to relate to people in an authentic genuine way whenever right. well what, that's what ends up happening is that we actually once we start to do that 
we're, we become more authentic human beings because when we start to, when we start to tell about our lives or tell about our experiences or, or engage in the things that we know or whatever it might be, then, then what we say becomes more real to us. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and we become more transparent. So we're, we actually begin to live more authentically. It makes a huge difference. It makes me think of a situation where I was speaking with a leader and I recommended that she walk amongst her people. And uh, she took the feedback, but it wasn't until almost eight months later, she said, okay, today I'm going to do it. And I didn't realize that she had that anxiety Mm-hmm. walking amongst her people I assumed <laughs> you mean the vulnerability she had walking among the people yeah that every leader that's something naturally you would think of doing right but her it was a it was the anxiety I'm going to replace the word fear <laughs> yeah no 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 let's make it vulnerability vulnerability yes so yeah. she was vulnerable right and one of the sh- things she said after the whole event was that she didn't think that people were interested in who she was. And I found that fascinating. It was a great lesson for me as well to see where that vulnerability as a leader came in. Right. That she really didn't think people wanted to get to know her on that level, but they so much do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So great. I want to talk about your book for a minute. Sure. 90 seconds to a life you love. And when I was watching the TEDx talk, I was like, Really? You can do that in 90 seconds? So I would love for you just to expand just a little bit more. Pique everybody's curiosity about this. Well, the, the 90 seconds is the method. The subtitle is the really the focus of the book. That, so the idea here is, again, I, I had two questions that, that really have carried through much of my life. Uh, one, because I started out as an, an exquisitely shy child, was how do people develop confidence? And then the second, as I got into my professional life, was what makes it so difficult for people to handle unpleasant feelings. And, as, and, and my professional life as a psychologist. So mm-hmm. the, what I realized over time is that, that answering that second question actually answered the first. So helping help, by learning what it was that I think makes it difficult for people to handle unpleasant feelings. You can see now why I say it's the, the foundational piece of confidence. And so, the, so I always wanted to make it easier for people to do it. And I kept on talking about ride the wave, ride the wave, ride the wave. And it wasn't until the late 1990s and the early 2000s that so much more neuroscience research started to come out. And what the findings suggested or neuroscientists started to talk about is that the way most of us experience emotional feeling is through bodily sensation. And, and then it dawned on me that, uh, and well, I'll do the second piece of it, that. And then another neuroscientist came out and said that, that when a feeling fires off in the body, and when a feeling fires off, it, it, there's a rush of biochemicals into the bloodstream that activate bodily sensations. And then there's a flush out of the bloodstream of those same biochemicals that lasts roughly 90 seconds. So, so then what, what dawned on me is that it wasn't that people didn't want to experience the whole range of what they felt, pleasant and unpleasant feelings. It's that they didn't want to experience the unpleasant bodily sensation 
Mm. Let them know what they were feeling emotionally. So think heat coming up and, and the redness in the face for embarrassment, mm. or think kind of a drop down feeling in your chest for sadness or disappointment. And it's like people were reacting to the bodily sensation and then they were checking out from that. It's like, nope, not gonna let myself go there. Mm -hmm. Disappointed early in life, huh? Never gonna let myself feel that again. So then they find all these different ways to cut off and shut down, but what are they doing? They're cutting it off and trying to shut down from the physical sensation that helps them know what they're feeling emotionally. So if I could let people know, and I talk about it in the book as the Rosenberg reset, it's one choice, eight feelings, 90 seconds. The one choice is you want to choose awareness as opposed to avoidance. So you want to stay present and move towards the unpleasant feeling. I've talked about the eight feelings and it's just those eight and why those eight it's because they're the most common, spontaneous everyday reactions, feeling reactions to things not turning out the way we need or want. And then the 90 seconds is just having an awareness that you need to ride one or more bodily uh, 90 second bodily sensation waves to move through the feeling. So that's the 90 seconds thing. Well, thank you for sharing the Rosenberg reset. You're welcome. Are there any highlights you would love to share with us as key takeaways you want us to move forward with emotional mastery and that emotional strength? Well, again, a foundation piece, learn how to stay present. And now you know how it's through writing the bodily sensation waves, learn how to stay present to those eight unpleasant uh, feelings or feeling states. The second is start speaking up if you tend to withhold. Uh, the, the third would be you've got to let go of that harsh self-criticism, put a stop to it. And I would say the, the fourth, just to reiterate that take it, taking those compliments, they actually make a huge difference and can make up, it can just, it, I help you up level your life. So those would be th you know, three or four main ones. Well, thank you for this amazing interview, Dr. Rosenberg. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. How could people stay in touch with you? Uh, all sorts of ways. Uh, DrJoanRosenberg.com. There's probably uh, some stuff they can go there. Uh, they can download from there. Uh, there's, uh, I have all, all the different handles. So it's Dr. J. Rosenberg on Facebook. There's a Love My Life um, Facebook group as well. There's Instagram and Twitter and <laughs> it's all, all I think under Dr. Joan Rosenberg and then the, the two TED Talks. So I'm out there. I'll probably start doing uh, some retreats and I would say look, look also for an online program uh, that all that's coming soon. Excellent. And they can find the book on the website. Is there a separate? Uh, yeah, they, they can go to, they can go to my website, drjoanrosenberg.com. They can go to 90secondsbook.com. Uh, they can go to Amazon or they can go to Barnes and Noble. They can go any, pretty much anywhere they buy books. It is uh, both online and in the traditional bookstores. Excellent. So you're going to want to get a hold of the 90 seconds to a life you love, how to master your difficult feelings to cultivate lasting confidence, resilience, and authenticity. That has been our podcast for today. I am signing off, wishing you to go over to iTunes write a review of this show, share this podcast with other people so that they can move through those 90 seconds to really creating a life you love and learning about Dr. Joan Rosenberg's book. So give us a five-star high five, subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends. You can also go over to www.debrakazowski.com 
to learn more about working with myself. And if you have any questions, you can email myself or go to Dr. Rosenberg's page so that we can help promote this book. So whereas more people who are more confident in the world and move through, especially that vulnerability. I know that we've replaced fear. We've moved anxiety and now vulnerability. I'm changing it up for you. And um, as Mahama Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world. And my wish for you as always is go out and make today great. Thank you for joining us.